Hey, Queeros. I want to take a special moment and thank everybody who supported the show on Patreon this year. You can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros and support this show. It really means the world to me. It makes it possible for me to continue to spend time talking with all of the people that you love. It also helps me to pay Sierra, who does all of our booking on this show. And I really can't tell you how much it means to be supported. Again, that's patreon.com slash query. But hey, let's take a minute and thank the queeros that have supported thus far. Those people who got a shout out today are... Leslie Gaditis, Katie Gagliardo, Robin Moxley, Francine Belbina, Gemma Douglas, Chantel McClelland, yep, Peg Gardner, Stacey M, Tanya Josek, Aaron Altruzik, Bobby Dahmer, Mara Barra, Liesl Jensen, Beck, Ethan Peterson, Amy A, Paula Vabadowski, Levon Sawake, Jen Graf Perkins, Yannick Morgan, Brenda Esposito, that's my actual mom, Fiona Ding, Jamie, Danny Elkhorn, Audrey Rohr, Catherine Michaels, Hannah McIntyre, Hannah Bo- Rachel McIntyre, Hannah Booth, Brittany Carlson, Chloe Vicker, and Kevin Fry. I also want to say that there is a level that you can become a patron of the show at uh, where you can be invited to a once a month chat with folks who also are patrons at that level. And let me just say that I, I actually really um, love this time. We meet on Sundays usually and for just an hour. And these folks have been an important part of my last year. And I know that they have also created community for themselves and, and have, and stay in touch and have, and have each other's information off that chat. And it really is, you know, if you're somebody who is looking for community right now, loves this podcast, wants to benefit this podcast, I would really, and you, and you happen to be able to, um, I would really recommend that because for me, being part of that community has has meant a lot. So thank you all so much for your support and keep at it in 2022, please. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Well, Queeros, this is the last episode of the year. I will be back in 2022 with new episodes. I'm so sorry to have had a wonderful thing happen in my career and life so that I couldn't come and make new episodes uh, for the last month. Uh, But boy, has it been great to re-release some classics and to get a chance to do our annual best ofs. And this is our final best of of the year featuring Theo Germain, Semler, and Chase Strangio and Nikki Levy. Boy, heavens to Betsy, what a year 2021 was for this podcast. Uh, Patreon came into existence for this show, and so many of you have chipped in to help support this show and make it possible to make it happen. So I want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank anybody who supported the show on Patreon this year. You can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros, and you could support the show, which I would really, really appreciate. Also, I want to thank all of our guests this year. Dang. Um, This show, we get great guests. I also want to thank Jordan, Matt and Sierra, who make this show possible, honestly, couldn't do it without them. Wouldn't be able to plug in a microphone, wouldn't be
be able to, I just need cheerful, smiling faces that tell me what's going on. And then I show up and speak. That's what I need. And those people make that happen. So thank you all for this 2021. And um, I will be talking to you in the new year. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still When I was 18, I was like <laughs> taken in by a burlesque troupe um, in central Illinois that still functions. It's this uh, this group called Carnival de Bosch, and they would perform at you know bars and festivals and things like that. And um, I had a friend who was working with them and and knew that like I was in need of. I was in need of community and just in need of like being around a ton of other freaks, honestly. Um, and so I, I started working with a burlesque troupe and um, I did that for a few years. And that was kind of what I was doing while I was in community college and tra- transitioning into university before I got so swept up in a conservatory style program that I wasn't even sleeping. Um, uh, lots of thoughts on conservatory style teaching um, and what it does to students. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but yeah, my my middle ground um, was uh, getting out of high school, socially transitioning, being very scared, but being like, you know, th- this this is who I am. This is what I need to do. I don't know anybody else yet, you know, really who's who's doing this. Um, trying really hard to find community. I found a trans affirming therapist who was one of the only ones uh, that I could find in all of Illinois below the Chicago area. Um, got taken in by a really cool burlesque troupe and started performing and doing that. Um, started trying Were you to, doing burlesque? Yeah. Yes. Yes, actually. I did do burlesque. Awesome. Um, I, I did burlesque and I did um, uh, stilt walking and I did acting and I am a fire performer. So I would do, I would like take my clothes off and like breathe fire at the same time. Um, I actually know totally what you're talking about. <laughs> I too can still walk and was briefly. Oh my God. Circus. Plus I have a ton of friends who are burlesque performers. That's so, so cool. yeah. Yeah. Did you ever I, go to a loft in Chicago? A loft circus? I arts? was there. I toured with them for a bunch of years. What did you, and I was there like in-house ringmaster. Oh, in wait, Chicago. was this, was this when they, this was when they were doing, um, it was like when they were in the, West Loop and they were doing El Circo Chipo. Yeah. Right. I, um, and before they moved to the church that they're now in. Yes. I, um, yeah, those are, those are my friends. Uh, and I, I totally worked with them for much years. They taught me how to still walk and that's so cool. A loft circus arts was also definitely part of my like middle ground. I started. Oh, really? Driving up to Chicago. (laughs) I started driving up to Chicago, um, on a day off or on the weekends, uh, to, to, to train there. So I, I started going, I actually, yeah, I started going there in 2011, I think, or 2012. I don't remember which year it was. So I was like down in, in central Illinois. And then I would take, I would take my free time, go up and train and then come back. Um, I was so desperate to get, I really wanted to do circus training as well. In addition to acting, because for a while I was like, do I want to, for a while I was like, do I want to work for Cirque du Soleil? Um, or, or do some, or do something like that. So, so wait, so we have more crossover now than I, that's so cool that I realized. So yeah, circus was part of my middle ground too. Um, circus burlesque, you know, theater friends, um, 
uh, trying really hard to find yeah, like, like I people. bet we know all the same people actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it's. I mean, my experience of being in stand up in Chicago was like that. I definitely was part of the stand up scene and like did stand up shows, but there were no queer people, and like nobody there was like and like no there was like no gender fuckage going on there was there were no queer people it was like truly like it was like straight cis dudes like that's who was doing stand-up at that time there were some like cis women um straight cis women like you know but it was still this vast majority so like in order to find community even though like i was part of the stand-up scene like in order to find community i really went outside of that and i like was sort of friends with like the weird art queers. So like anybody who was doing like a salon type performance or anybody who was like an actor, but also was in the roller derby and anybody who was in the circus, just, yeah. Like, I mean, lovingly the freaks, you know, cause that's, that's what I was too. Right. And like in the thing, in the thing that I was doing to make money, I was a freak there. And so I think i went and found like, where is everybody else, you know? And yeah. I, that's so, so outside of like, you know, performing at like a stand-up club like Zany's, I was also performing. I was like doing everything. Um, and that was actually a really nice time. Plus my sister's a dancer and I was dating dance. So it just was like a very like modern dance circus performer. Like everybody, it just was, it was like a big group of people who all felt like there was like some overlap. And a lot of it was um, just stuff I couldn't find elsewhere. I'm like so grateful for that, for that group of people um, too. It sounds like we actually, I love that we have this overlap. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean the, the folks that were that community at Aloft, they were like when they took me on tour with them and they were very affirming of like, not just that I, that they thought I was funny, but like, that whatever was going on with me was okay, you know, like in every way, you know, they're like mm-hmm. comfortable with their bodies in a way that I am still working on because they're like training all the time. They're basically just like nude, um, tra- changing clothes, you know, and there was just like a different thing there that I saw and like a different level of acceptance it actually really changed my life. I would say that my experience at Aloft really changed my life too, just in the sense that I was like, go starting to go there was really was it really felt like I was I was taking my like artistic path really really into my own hands because I was like not just you know doing like the normal school thing I was actively seeking ways you know to grow whether it was something about my brain you know or my body and also was just it was just really nice to meet a lot of a lot of people who just looked different, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Wow. I'm, I miss, yeah. I miss training a lot. It's been really hard to like, not, I, I also have gone to, um, I've trained at circus. I think it's circus warehouse in Los Angeles. I think there's a place called, I think it's a place called circus warehouse in Los Angeles or LA Cirque school or something like that. I don't know. There's some place in LA that that's one. LA Cirque school. Circus warehouse is in New York. Um, yes, actually. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Advertisements for for circus schools in Los Angeles and New York. Both the places that I've been to are great. Right. During that time in my life, because there are people who are training in every city, when I would go on the road with them, we would like hang out with the people who um, did the same thing in New York or L.A. or whatever. And then for a brief period of time, I was like working with a circus company in Seattle. 
I mean, I will just say that I don't think, I don't know, stand-up wasn't very nurturing for me as a community. So it was cool to have this other group of people that were doing different artistic um, endeavors. When you were at? To, like, have all the pieces. Yeah. When you were there, too, like, did you have something that you liked, like, training in? Like, were there, what, like, what, like, were there classes that you were like, yes, I want to do this? I mean, this is so wild. They, like, I mean, like, I tried. I, like, tried to do tumbling or, like, get up on the trapeze and stuff. But um, I really just mostly, like, wore a costume. They put wild makeup on my face and, like, a ton of glitter. And then I would, like, tell jokes. So I was really doing stand-up. I would do it while they were changing the rigging because oh yeah, um, yeah. all the places that I was working would be like a one-ring circus, not like a three-ring circus or whatever. And so they would have these gaps in the performance where they needed to like take down a type rope and put up a trapeze or whatever it was. And so I would go out and, yeah, I would tell jokes or like interact with the audience. Um, And it was great. It was great training as a stand-up because I had to be like funnier than the giant spectacle that was happening behind me yeah while they were changing this stuff but you were doing like actual classes with them yes yeah i did trapeze and i did silks and then for a little while i did sear wheel and then i started doing straps which is my favorite that makes sense straps is totally my favorite (laughs) yeah and but you're not doing that anymore because of other work stuff uh i wish that i could be doing it right now i haven't just because of the pandemic and Mm, right if if (laughs) yeah if if like like more normal acting work non-circus work is like really busy um sometimes i can't train for a while but i've been trying to figure out how to prioritize things in a way that allows me to have some specific time in the future to do training um because I just, I just love it so much. And one of the first classes that I took, I think it was when I was like 19, there was somebody in the class who was 64 or 65 or 66 who had been taking silks and trapeze for a few years. And he was a runner, but he was in a spot where he wasn't really able to do a lot of running anymore. And so he had switched to doing a lot of different kind of circus trainings as his, as his body would allow and um, I was like, this is so cool. Like, you know, circus is a type of physical activity that, you know, that I could, you know, do when I'm 50, you know, I could do when I'm 60. Like, it's just something that brings me joy and is fun. And it's fun to think about acts, whether or not I perform, uh, because it's really, really hard to get a job doing that. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to be able to prioritize trading uh, whenever I'm able to. It's, it's just so much fun. I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, it also, I don't know. I'm, 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 it makes sense to me based on the story that you've told me so far about your life, that this would be very appealing to you. Because for me, I will just say, I'm like using my own experience to, but for me, it was also a place where there was just like a lot of different, um, again, I would also say this is true of dance and my experience with like the Chicago, specifically the Chicago dance community, but in both of those spaces, there was just, there was like stuff going on in terms of gender expression that I hadn't seen before. Like people who 
were like very beautiful and graceful and also very muscular or very like wearing a lot of makeup, but fully identify as like a straight cis dude, you know, or whatever it is, like Mm -hmm. just the things that I was seeing. And in terms of my feeling like a weirdo in a lot of times in my life, I just think it was, yeah, it was very healing to sort of be around people who didn't necessarily, like I lived with a hair hanger for a while. (laughs) My roommate, Laura was hurt. She hangs from her hair. Yeah. Um, And, you know, she was, like, very sort of, I think, what we would traditionally describe as, like, feminine, although she wore, like, old-timey clothes. (laughs) Um, But she also is, like, so jacked, you know, like, like very, and way taller than me. And um, anyway, I just think it was very cool for me to see all of that stuff going on and just feel like it, like, the fact that every, the fact that I, like, had sort of like rocks our hair at the time, but like fully was queer, but then also like really wanted them to put lots of elaborate makeup on my face. Like they were all into that. They thought it was cool. And like, they also wouldn't have done it if I didn't want it, you know? And that yeah. was not something I was getting a lot of other places. Yeah. God, I, yeah, I'm thinking about like- Does that resonate? It, no, yeah. It, 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 it does in the sense that like, there were certain things that I was- yeah, yes, it does. It does resonate. There are certain things that I was not getting in school uh, and not getting at my place of formal training. I don't know if that's the you know, formal training or something like that. Um, there's stuff that I was not getting at my school. And so getting to go for me, getting to go and like perform it at, at you know, bars um, and, you know, do a lot of like, like weird, you know, freaky, like more, you know, transgressive stuff was definitely something that I was like, I need this. Like, I, I you know, I need an education. I, I want to be an actor, but I need, I like need in my heart, like need this, need this weird shit. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, de- yeah, I, I, I feel that. Yeah. It definitely sure. was the place where I felt I could express myself the most as well. You're a person of faith. Yeah, today. for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I would, re- I always like to say that I'm a faithfully skeptical Christian in the sense that like, I'm the person who like stands up at communion or like standing in line waiting to receive the blood of Christ. And I'm like, this is a cult. Like, come on. Like I'm in a cult. I recognize, I didn't have a choice. Like one of the first songs, one of the first lines on my EP Preacher's Kid is the first song I learned spoke of Bethlehem and like is that prophecy or is that brainwashing? Like I don't know how I learned about God. I don't remember learning how to pray. It's just interwoven within me and I know that I do have a connection to the divine and to scripture that has been a source of comfort and healing in my life. But I also can recognize that like I don't know any different. That was the culture that I was brought up in. I was never given an opportunity to discover faith on my own. And I wonder what I might find. The language that was given to me was Christian language. The terms to understanding God was Christian language. And I I was given a Bible and that's how I've sort of made sense of different things. And I want to be discerning in that. And I want to appreciate the mystery of faith and like questions abound about like, did any of this stuff like really happen? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not a literalist at all, but I also can't deny that when I pray, I'm praying in the name of Jesus. When you're 
talking about Jesus, who do you mean? <laughs> um, the Jesus of the Bible, I guess, like Jesus of Na- Nazareth. Is that like? Yeah, I think, that I, I think there might, you know, when I, um, I'm asking that question because I might be more, I be, might be more well positioned than some people to understand what you're talking about. You know, I um, am also somebody who, well, I actually believe that I was raised in a cult, um, but I, I do um, at the same time think that human wisdom um, that has been accrued over history <laughs> um, exists for a reason. You know, yeah. when, when we look at different kinds of, you know, spiritual text, when we look at like how we sort of get to all the, the realizations that we have throughout our individual lives, there's mm-hmm. also this like arc of all of our lives that's happening at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's you and me, there's like our generation, but then there's, you know, American history. And then there's like world history. And I, I kind of think, um, it really fascinates me to look at people's explanation for why we're here and what we are supposed to do with our time. And so I don't think that when we talk about, especially if, like within the queer community, I don't think that when we talk about Jesus, like even as a person, like even the hearing that name, it like, it like um, creates a little bit of like a weird feeling in my spine. And this is as somebody who really believes that the Bible is like actually full of some important teaching about yeah. what we're doing here. You know, I also think it's full of <laughs> some um, <laughs> cultural context that we should look at because it's part of our history too. And that we should um, probably not apply to our lives in the 21st century, but yeah, like it's, yeah. A, you know, some part of it is history. It's yes. like, Oh, this is how we felt about things as a, yeah. as a cultural, this context. is how the, this is how the, um, you know, this is a, a cultural norm of the time, you know, a lens. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think, you know, when you're talking about like, believing in Jesus or praying to Jesus, I guess what I'm asking is, I'm do I imagine? All of thing to say, yeah. like, not do you imagine, but like, what are you talking about? Because I think, I know, I know it's not, you're not talking about like white sky God. Yeah. But given that we only talk about white sky God, right? <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Well, I think what was really formative for me was as I started coming out and being honest about who I was, was really the first time in my life that I actually felt comfy enough to pray. So, and that started breaking down a lot for me of like, okay, wait a second, I am going against biblical womanhood, I guess. And now I feel more interested in creation. So let me unpack other things that maybe were taught and deeply ingrained in me that I need to like dismantle. And the common phrasing within a lot of circles is deconstruct. So when I say that I'm like praying to Jesus, when I say, when I talk about the divine, a thing that was so crucial for me was like breaking down those notions of sky God, 
who is man like on cloud like i had to really break down like why do i think that where is the evidence for that going into like early translations that refer to god in like a plural sense so that so that it's like beyond gender it's we're expanding beyond anything that we can conceive of and feeling like really small but so comfortable and like at peace with my tininess if that makes sense like it sometimes i just like love thinking about like just how small everything that we worry about must be in the grand sense of like the universe and that so when i'm praying to jesus it's like that is the the word and the and like the gospels were the example that were taught to me as a kid of what absolute radical love looks like in a lived written form and so when i'm praying i'm thinking of that that is like who i am praying to i'm praying to absolute love in the name of jesus because that's how it was taught to me um but i know that in different traditions and cultures that absolute love has been given another name that is just as valid and holy and divinely inspired and all of it you know once you allow space for all of it, it like comes rushing in, you know, and when you allow yourself, that's what I think is so frustrating with a lot of my friends in more conservative traditions is like, you're, you're boxing in God. And if you can wrap your mind around the, 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 I guess the operating system of the divine is that really a creator that is all powerful. <laughs> if you, if you can like, like drill them down to like a chore list of things that you have to accomplish in your lifetime and, and things that you have to adhere to in order to find favor in that divine, is that really an ultimate, beautiful, loving creator? If you and our little like peanut brains, if we can be like, no, 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 I got it. This is what this God would vote for legislatively speaking. Like what? <laughs> that is insane. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Except that for some reason I can, not for some reason, you know, I, um, I've been like on a personal quest to sort of understand a little bit more about what, what manifestations of spirituality, organized manifestations of spirituality make sense to me. Um, and for me, if I think about like what is interesting to me it's a sort of a liberative spirit like that's something that i'm obsessed with and have been curious about for as long as i can remember and mm -hmm. you know i think about um the black church in america as having such a basis for that in in preaching and in um tradition and not necessarily um on issues of queerness um although like church by church and preacher by preacher but um i can understand that there are some places where i feel like that was better enacted this like liberative spirit than sort of what i saw growing up because mm -hmm. i do think there are parts of the catholic church that have that going on um and i think there are a lot of parts that don't you know, so for me, that's when I really like had to take a step back from being part of an organized religion. It's because I felt like, wait, I read this thing and what I got from it was that we're looking to liberate. And right. it seems like what you're doing is the opposite of that, you know? And um, 
I just couldn't understand. I just couldn't understand. Like, I just felt like I can't be smarter than you, like all of you. I can't be smart. It can't be that I know this and you've never thought of this. So, oh, maybe you don't care or like we're reading this and we're taking the, you know, a different thing from it. Um, mm. And it seemed like such a different thing. So that's that's really for me what like this sort of schism that's happened within my own self that like I've never sort of re that I've never sewed back together is like how we can be working for, you know, liberation as people personally and then culturally and package that at all. It's been very hard to figure out how that could be, how that can be harnessed into then a group of people who sit together. Does that make it any sense? Never, and yeah, totally. It almost never works. I mean, think about what right. the things that are coming out about like Hillsong and those like very like Instagrammable celebrity mega churches that, you know, let's say 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, were really hitting their stride in popularity because they were advertising were different. We are doing right. something different. But in fact, you know, because of how fallible we all are and because absolute power corrupts absolutely, and we were given, they were given so much money and authority um, in such a short span of time, we're finding out about the behind-the-scenes abuses that were occurring and how actually quite regressive and exclusionary their theology really was. Um, and so I, I, I totally understand that. It's something that I still struggle with. I am a member of a church out here in California, but I, I'm not a regular attendee. I, I really like the, the reverend there. I think she's incredible. But I grew up going to the church like every day. I lived in the rectory. And so I almost like saw behind the curtain growing up. I saw about like how people talked about money and issues of hiring and like just natural. It, it's a, it's a workplace. We forget about right. that. Like the church is someone's right. workplace. And so people are like gossiping at coffee coolers. You shouldn't, it's not a great thing, but you do, <laughs> you know, sure. like if so-and-so didn't wash the robes on time. And so now you're in like kind of gross robes from a few weeks ago. Like you're going to talk about it. Like, Oh, like Brenda didn't wash the robes. And it, it like it, the, almost like the mystery and the like wonder yeah, is sort of gone, you know? And so yeah, I think that's sure. something to remember about any organized religion. It's just people getting together and kind of agreeing on the direction that their interpretation of scripture is leading them to. But at the end of the day, it is a business. Like they want people to come in the doors so yeah. they're going to figure out how to package it in a way that pleases people. And so I I still, it's something that I'm like very conscious of as I like am writing Christian music, which is like, it's explicit Christian music. It's not, I, I call it like praise and rage. It's not praise and worship because there's a lot of anger in it. It's like praise and rage music. And um, I think that I'm just very aware of how do I want to enter Christian spaces if I do it all? Like I want to write music for people who, identify with this experience but i also like don't necessarily want to go on tour with stephen curtis chapman and like amy grant no offense to amy grant she seems sweet but like you know what i mean like i don't know if i really want to be held to that weird standard and christian packaging because it's not me not that i mean obviously of course it's not me like they never they don't want me <laughs> i have okay so yes let's let's i have i have several things to revisit here okay um first of all I just, this has nothing to do with anything, but yes, 
I, when I was like a little teeny kid and I was an altar server, just like, you know, priest assistant in the Catholic church, I just remember the day that I like saw the bag that all the hosts come in, which are, it's like, what do we call the Eucharist? You know, yeah. cause it's like, it's, um, they're like little crackers wafers. chips or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Wafers. Yes. And anyway, you know, it's like the church smells like the church. It, it, you know, there's like an, a vibe of incense, everything, you know, going in early. I'm like putting on a robe or whatever. But then you open this closet. It's like a giant, like Costco plastic bag of wafers, wafers that then you like stick your hand in and then pull it out and then like mm-hmm. put that into like a gilded chalice, you know. Yeah. So it is funny to see the I, I can't quite imagine what you may have seen growing up, but I feel like. Some of it is just knowing, like, that the wafers come in a giant, a huge, part like, of it body-sized that. bag. That, and that, well, it should be a body-sized a bag. Body-sized anyway, bag. it really um, should be. If we're, if, we're, if we're being, like, yeah. accurate, it's honestly it disrespectful if it was. Yeah. But yeah, also, absolutely. like, if you ever received a bottle of wine from us for a gift, that was communion wine. Like, if you ever received, like, oh a my bottle God, of wine what? from my dad, that was totally communion well, wine. Well, that's really funny. Our, if it was red, not come yeah. in a bottle... It was like a Carlo Rossi, like, um, like jug. Oh, you had a, well, like that's, that's what maybe, your church was probably doing better than ours. No, I think it sounds like yours was because ours oh. was going with for bulk. We're like, oh, had, like yo, Franzia. the wine is like you know that, my dude. <laughs> like, just like slap the bag with like a brand yeah. new box. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, and I want to, I want to ask you what your shows are like and also like maybe there's a bit of a maybe there's a bit of a middle stop here to talk about so like we hear a little bit about how you grew up what happened next <laughs> how, what happened what's the middle part between little kid and who you are now what happened yeah. in the middle there uh, it's a blur um okay so i'll answer that part um yeah so i knew i was different for reasons I couldn't really explain around the age of like five or six. Like I always, the way that I present now, um, it makes me like very like kind of warm and fuzzy sometimes because it was like my wildest dream to be able to wear my brother's clothing growing up, like, and to have a haircut like his, like I, that was all I wanted. And I think like so many people, when you realize and you look around, you're like, oh, I can't do this. Like, this is not okay. I remember like, Man, I remember this watching a sitcom one time with like family and friends. Like it was some we were all watching TV and like a butch character entered into the sitcom. And I don't even remember what she did, but she was just immediately the butt of the joke. Like immediately the butt of the joke in and everyone was laughing along with it. And so I remember like looking around being like, dang, like I thought she looked so cool. <laughs> and everyone was like just laughing at her. And so I was like, well, I don't want to be like laughed at. And it was little things like that, you know, so that I eventually like started presenting like real femme and being like, I'm just going to make this work. I think a lot of us, it's like, can you fake it till you make it? Like maybe if I just keep trying, I'd go on like mission trips and youth group and I'll be like, maybe like, I'm going to really, I'm going to meet a boy. Like, let's do it. I'm going to make it work with a good Christian boy who will never touch me. Like, yes. (laughs) And, um, it just, it got to this point where I was doing all the like right things and I was like spiraling privately. And 
I think, uh, I think around the time I, I did start coming out to people, but I just like, couldn't, I, I like, couldn't act on it basically. So like from the age of like 16 until like 20 was when I was coming out to people and I was having like secret relationships and things like that. But publicly I was still very like a uh, good Christian girl autumn or whatever. And, um, Eventually, I just, like, kind of reached my breaking point, and I think moving to Los Angeles was a huge—I moved when I was 22, and that was a huge thing for me of just seeing more regularly other people wandering around that looked in a way that felt comfortable to me that were not the butt of the joke, that were thriving, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And I actually remember a show of yours that I saw, like, got— I can't— on, like, CISO? Was that— Am I remembering that? Yeah. And I just remember being, like— that is so cool that like I just seeing people that I just really identified with doing well, like was mind blowing. So I think it was actually like from 22 moving to LA and just like seeing more representation. It's so powerful. Representation is so powerful. Gave me little by little the courage to start being myself and like, just like even shopping in sections that I liked, like the number I had to pretend to like flats for like years. (laughs) <laughs> I told, I remember one time saying or agreeing that I thought Johnny Depp was cute. Like that's, that's hard. That was we- like, the, you know what I mean? Like just to be like, it's so cute in the movie. Like it's awful. It's awful. How long ago was this for you? Like what you moving to LA? I moved to LA probably like seven years ago, seven, yeah, seven, maybe eight years ago. So, yeah. but it was like, it's like a slow, it's kind of a slow burn. I still, yeah. I think also like once you start being yourself, then you only start to dream about like, well, now what do you want to do? Because for a while I was like, I'll be a, I was a PA. I worked as an assistant. I did a lot of like industry type stuff. I was so private about my songwriting because I was just like, I'm not Taylor Swift. I'll never make it. Like I'll never never be like the good girl next door. No one's going to care about my sad songs. And then I think quarantine afforded so many of us the time of like kind of cutting the bullshit of like I don't I just didn't even have there I didn't have the bandwidth to care about what people would think so I just recorded everything on this mic here at home it accidentally ended up being like a Christian record because that's what I was thinking about that's what was on my heart and I you know and then kind of the rest ended up happening but I it was it took a while yeah what is the rest that ended up happening? So you recorded it on this microphone in your house. Yes. And I released it independently on a website called distrokid.com. And I promoted it on TikTok. I was like, you know, we could, you know, it would be cool if we charted basically, like if a queer artist charted in Christian music, that'd be amazing. And, you know, people really have showed up for me. And I think that the thing that we're always conditioned to believe, especially within like communities of faith, is that if you can't make it work, you're alone and you're the problem. And what I found was that there were so many other people who, even if we didn't have the exact same story, resonated with parts of the story. Or like I have a song about youth group lock-ins and they're like, I went to a youth group lock-in. And so I think that finding that there's so many more of us. We were never alone. We were told that we were isolated, that we couldn't make it work, but there's so many more of us. And so, yeah. So then we ended up hitting number one for like three days and which was crazy. And then from that point forward, you know, I've been really like focusing on my music. I'm putting out another EP hopefully this fall. And like, we're going on like tour this November, like there, it's just been a whirlwind of basically 
listeners and people saying, I want to hear this. I, and I was told point blank by a Christian music executive that no one would, which is crazy. You, well, no, that sounds, that sounds actually, yeah, no, that's, that sounds right. And then <laughs> it's awesome. It's so, well, let me, okay. So you're going on tour. Is this your first experience like that? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. And do you have it? Is it all, do you know the venues that you're playing and, yeah. and you know, the size so, and how, how many and. So I'm opening um, for um, Katie Pruitt, who's this incredible artist, and um, she is just super, super talented. I'm opening for her on three dates, and then we're planning a headline show in also in November here in Los Angeles, and they're all like dive bars. So it's like a it's like a dive bar. Um, I want to come to your show in in Los Angeles. Yeah, that would be awesome. I think I think it's going to be a really fun time because it's like it's a bunch of just uh, my dream of dreams would be for it to just be a room full of people who felt like they're they'd never fit in who get to sing like praise and rage songs however wherever place it comes from if i'm like the last christian show you go to before just like a big f you to the sky then i would be honored you know like if you (laughs) if like you know if you just you know if you if you're interested in being around other people of faith or other queer people, if you never felt like you could wear what you wanted to in Christian spaces because of purity culture, like I want you to like wear whatever you want and be exactly who you are. No asterisks. There's so many Christian communities that have that asterisk over like come as you are, but like you should kind of be this way. I I want all of that gone. I just want people to gather and find community. And if you feel like mad about it, there should be space for that in faith as well. Sure. I mean, also, it doesn't surprise me what you said about that Christian music executive, but, um, you know, it's, it, it feels like, you know, Casey Musgraves, like Jason Isbell sort of we're we are living in a moment where, especially for white people, um, who grew up like, you know, maybe anybody in their, let's say twenties, thirties and forties, especially, um, I think that for white folks, I think our social awareness has changed pretty significantly. I mean, there, there, the 60s also haven't. Um, but, you know, for people like sort of my generation or our generation, I feel like, you know, I really was raised in, like, you know, I remember the 80s and the 90s. And I think that that was a lot of like, white denial that was were like hardcore like taking a lot of stuff back Mm -hmm. taking Mm -hmm. a lot of regulating a lot of movement forward and not that things are fixed but i do think that's because of being raised in the 80s and 90s there's like you know there are some genres of things (laughs) christian music being one of them totally then you're in your 20s 30s and 40s and you're learning more about the world and it just no longer jives. And there is this huge market for, I mean, this is actually one thing that's happening um, for faith affiliation. Like our generally in this country, our faith affiliation has like dipped massively in um, time with the advances in the LGBTQ plus movement. So it's like, yeah, Casey Musgraves comes on the scene and is like, follow your arrow and mm-hmm. people have something that they can actually listen to that doesn't make them feel like shit or like they're not themselves when they put the music on that they like. 
Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it seems like for what you're talking about, it's like, yes, yes, yeah. there is a huge need for this. Well, um, I, so when we hit number one, um, there was a direct correlation to like conservative media outlets writing reviews about the project. They pretty much ignored it for a while. Um, and I think that it was like, don't give it any attention. And then once it hit number one and we got picked up by NPR and, um, you know, there were some major media outlets that were interested in the story that then, you know, there was an uptick of conservative media. And one of the reviews was about like the limits. It was like, it was like similar preachers kid and the limits of inclusion, basically like we should actually be less inclusive. And one of the takes on it was like similar is still clearly very heartbroken over things that happened to her in the church and that's okay. But like, really there's no praising of God on this record and she should come back when she's happy and write about praising God. And so I, I took that note and then I wrote a single that I put out called thank God for that, which is like, it's almost like my version of friends in low places, but like a Christian version. And the lyric is <sighs> I'm fucking gay. Thank God for that. Christians cast me out, but Jesus had my back. So it's a it's a liter it's an explicit cr praise and worship song that like you only can sing with your friends when you're feeling sloppy and they and I was like do you, is this better now do you like you just don't like that I'm that I feel whole in who I am just say the quiet part out loud you don't like that I'm gay and that I view my queerness as a blessing you don't like that you disagree with it that's fine just say that don't say that you want me to come back when I'm happy I am happy because I made it through the shit that people like you put me through. You know, I started and a lot of the work that I was doing was around litigating marriage equality cases. And that was a big part of the mainstream LGBTQ legal movement, um, which really, right. I think, you know, you, we, in order to understand this moment, in many ways, you have to understand that one. And and so actually, can I stop you just a second? Yeah. There is was that part of why you were is is that part of why you were specifically hired by the ACLU, or like, or was that part of your job description at in joining nine years ago? Yeah. So 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 I no. I mean, I think that it was definitely a big part of what the ACLU was doing at that time. But I had come from a small organization called the Sylvia Rivera Law Project and was doing trans work. And I think in many in am trans, and I think that I was hired as a trans person in part because there was an understanding that you know, well, this is a movement that is has very few trans lawyers, but increasingly trans work is obviously central to the LGBTQ work. But even though that, that was, I think, my expertise coming in, I was only a few years out of law school um, at the time of my hire. And the reality of the work was that, you know, this was in, I was hired in 2012 and started at the very beginning of 2013. And, you know, the ACLU was at the time litigating Windsor at the United States Supreme Court, which was the case that ultimately struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the federal law that prohibited federal recognition of state marriage as between same-sex couples. And then essentially what happened after that is you have this very condensed two-year period of massive litigation challenging state bans on marriage. Okay. Um, and so yes. that between 2013 and 2015, that was a huge part of, of what I was doing and what many people were doing. But I think what also happened during that time period is that as much as we were focusing on that, we weren't laying the groundwork for the trans work effectively um, because the resources were being funneled into marriage. Um, and so ultimately, when 
Obergefell, which is the Supreme Court decision decided two years after Windsor that struck down bans on marriage for same-sex couples leading the way to marriage equality nationwide, when that was decided in 2015, the backlash was immediately centered on trans folks. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you see, beginning really in November of 2015, this massive movement to start to attack trans people in a more concerted way, leading to in 2016, the real proliferation of the anti-trans bathroom bills. That was the year of HB2 in North Carolina. That was the year where we saw, you know, dozens of anti-trans bills trying to ban trans kids from the bathroom in schools. Um, And we started litigating Gavin Grimm's case in the summer of 2015, which was ultimately, which would ultimately go to the Supreme Court twice, um, which involved a, a, you know, he's a He's a man now, but a boy who was barred from the bathroom at his school um, for being trans. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, from 2016 until now, a lot of my work has really focused on sort of building out, you know, structural support in the litigation, legislative advocacy and communication space to challenge these very well-coordinated, very well-funded attacks on trans people. Um, And, uh, you know, I think... What we ended up seeing were, you know, sort of a peak in 2016 that ultimately dissipated some in terms of state level attacks when Trump was elected, because at that point you had the federal government being so consistently anti-trans that there wasn't that same level of attacks at the state level. Um, and, And then unfortunately what we've seen in the last year has been the most significant escalation of attacks. And there's a lot of reasons for that, I think, that we could identify but largely, I think, you, you know, it's a back, a continued backlash to marriage equality, a backlash to the mm-hmm. Supreme Court's decision in Bostock from 2020, um, holding that LGBTQ people are protected under existing federal non-discrimination laws, backlash to Biden's election. Um, and so now we're in this position where the past year has been just especially brutal. And we've seen the highest number of bills in 20. Um, in 2021, attacking trans youth in particular, focusing on trans kids in sports and healthcare for trans minors. So I've been doing a lot of work trying to stop those bills when those bills do become law, suing over them um, and and trying to, you know, create the pushback, at least in the courts and the state legislatures, um, you know, to try to minimize some of the harms of what we're seeing. Did you, is this the area of law that you thought you would practice when you were going to law school? Um, I definitely went to law school to do trans work in one way or another. I, I, you know, was wanted to, you know, support trans communities through, you know, some aspect of legal intervention. I think I never imagined being at the ACLU from, you know, that was like a type of law that I thought that, you know, I sort of thought as like overly compromised, overly assimilationist um, and was very much like, no, I'm going to do direct services. I went from, you know, I worked at a very small like nonprofit like collective with seven employees. That's what I thought I would do. Um, and then ultimately, uh, I think just saw, you know, how effective and important some of the big impact litigation could be. Um Though I still have a lot of critiques of the work that I do. Um, And, you know, it's definitely, you know, why I went to law school was to do some amount of legal support and intervention around trans justice. I never imagined doing this, these big civil rights cases. Um, But I, you know, I shifted from small nonprofit to the ACLU after, you know, about two and a half years out of law school and have stuck around for nine years. and, And that has been you know, sort of how I have 
chosen, for better or for worse, to try to do the harm reduction legal work. Um, that was the reason I went to law school. When you're saying that you you were you thought it would be overly um, assimilationist, do you mean because the types of cases and the types of plaintiffs that that are needed for something like these like large sweeping cases that it's not, it's not necessarily um, the minutia, but like the biggest broadest appeal version of some of these issues. Is that, was that what you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, I think when you do impact litigation, you're handpicking your plaintiffs a lot of the time you're, you know, you're not, you know, saying, well, what does the community need most and who's in crisis and how do we sort of, Mm address these crises that are coming in. Like, you know, for example, I think if you do direct services, you're addressing, and there's lots of compromise in that too, but you're addressing sort of people's base. Direct services. Meaning. Yeah. So (laughs) like, you know, doing work where, you know, someone comes in as like, these are the array of legal issues that I'm facing. Um, Can you help? Um, Versus versus, building a case and then looking for the right plaintiff. Exactly. that, That, can stand behind that case or whatever. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and in a lot of times it's also someone in crisis. It's, you know, especially now it's like kids are about to lose their healthcare in Arkansas. That is a crisis. Sure. Um, and so that is, but it, these are massive cases that take years and you're very I don't, much. I don't know that people would even know what we're talking about though. That's yeah. why I'm like yeah. asking them yeah. the, the nitty gritty questions. Cause I don't know that, um, I mean, I don't even know why I know this, but it's not, I don't think that we talk about these cases in this way where, where, um, the ACLU is like looking for the right that, you know, it's not, it's not because the issue doesn't exist, but because the legal system is such that the type of plaintiff matters, you know, this matters too much, perhaps, uh, I would say, but you know, that, that we're looking for like, who's the most, um, it's like who's the, the most legible? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I it's didn't like who's legible? That, that that's yeah. how it worked. It's like who? I mean, if huh. you think about it, like too. I mean, we we have these like massive civil rights cases that we know of, like Brown versus Board of Education, Loving right. versus Virginia. Um, yeah. You know, the there. I mean, I maybe not everyone knows all these cases, but like. Um, you know, and and they are critically important cases, but there's always so much other types of work that is happening in these movements, right? right? And these cases are, um, you know, they take a decade potentially. And so, you know, whoever is the actual client in a case like this, like you do need to have quite a lot of comparative support and privilege to be able to litigate mm-hmm. a case up to the United States Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, it's also destructive to the it's person's, de- you know, life, life. and, and yes. um, ability to take care of themselves financially, medically, you know, emotionally in terms of move forward. Um, yeah, I, the, I again, I don't, I don't think this is common knowledge. And I don't, I don't even know that people would know. I mean, God, like if I even just tried to describe Brown versus the Board of Education is about school integration. Loving is about um, interracial marriage. Like, I don't even know that we can name those. So I, I think I do think that some of the stuff that you're talking about here is like pretty in the weeds for the even the casual casual listener of this show that might have seen our lives impacted so many times by these types of cases in just the last dec- decade alone. Um, yeah. And I think one way to think about it, too, is like so the impact litigation, like big civil rights work, like organizations like the ACLU or Lambda Legal or 
you know, NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, like those, the work that we do is about, you know, finding ways to change what the law says Mm -hmm. about, you know, and then, but a lot of the work that we need on a day-to-day basis is about applying the law to people. And we don't really do that type of enforcement work, you know, so we know, for example, in a city like New York, there's lots of legal protections for people. They just aren't getting the benefit of them because the law is not actually being enforced. And so when you're doing direct services work, a lot of times you're saying, well, the law needs to apply to me in this way. And and I'm just going to go and make sure that it does. And then it impacts litigation organizations, big civil rights organizations were saying, we want the law to say something totally different. Right. And yeah. This is like really, making the law. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the, the, a good example huh. of this is also the Americans with Disabilities Act, which like had to be passed. But the only way that it's that individual service providers have to change what they're doing are like individual lawsuits. Like for yeah. like, there's a, like, there's this big law that says that you have to provide accessibility. But if your gym that you go to doesn't, then the way that we actually deal with that in this country is individually suing those Uh gyms or whatever it is to. So anyway, this is, this is very in the weeds, but I do think it's super interesting. Um, and well, I, I I never, I never thought of it that way. I mean, I'm not any kind of lawyer at like at literally any kind of lawyer, not even a, (laughs) not even, not even a cute lawyer, not even a casual yeah. Not I mean, even casual. If I'm wearing my casual underwear, I guess I I could be casual <laughs> anything. But um, uh, I never thought of that like that, Chase. I I really didn't. Like I I never thought that like right. What you do with the ACLU is creating. Like I never thought of it that it it's literally the whole work is creating systemic change for us queer people, as opposed to helping like someone who's like, hey, my my boss fired me anyway, even though the law said they can't. Mm-hmm. I never thought of that. That's really cool. Really, a that's a cool way to think about it. A lot of people working at things from different directions, for sure. Uh huh. And we need it all. So it's just about which intervention do we choose, and you know, yeah. and how do we then support the work that we're doing without compromising other types of work? And I think when you're mm-hmm. doing big legal cases, you're relying on the legitimacy of the legal system that in many ways is fundamentally illegitimate. And that I think is one of the big challenges. It's, you know, you have to have a lot of faith in what the courts do to do what I do, but I don't have that faith in the courts, but you still, you know, every day you're like, can we continue to push even if Mm. the system itself is so fucked up? 